Welcome to the Power of Property podcast. I am your host, Ellie Mackay, a property investor and developer. And this podcast is for anyone who shares my passion for property. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started, I want to take you to the next level. I'm going to be bringing some real chat with some of the UK's leading property entrepreneurs. We'll be sharing wisdom and industry insights without any of the BS. Property's absolutely transformed my life and I know it has the potential to change yours too. Enjoy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of The Power of Property where I am joined by an absolute superstar, um, a fabulous lady, Lisa Brown, which of course you all you all know her through the Supported Living Gateway, but she's got so much more to her than just the Supported Living Gateway. She's an absolute phenomenal powerhouse in the property world and it is a true pleasure to have you with me today, Lisa. Oh, thank you. What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Ali. It's great Everyone to be here. Everyone always says that. I, I start well with the introduction. It, it tends to go, go downhill. So if, <laughs> if this property gig doesn't work out, I have been told that I can just, like, people will pay me to just go around behind them and introduce them. <laughs> I can think of worse jobs. Yeah, that, that would be quite good. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lisa, it, it, it's genuinely um, a pleasure to have you with me today. But for any of the listeners who don't know, who you are. Let's start with a little bit of your backstory, a little bit about you, a bit of behind the scenes, and, and then we'll lead into how you actually got into property. Okay. Um, so I'm a nurse, really. Um, I've been a nurse for um, over 20 years. I worked in the NHS in, in lots of different settings, but mostly in the emergency department um, in East London, in a, a very busy emergency department. Um, and then I kind of fell into property, and as lots of people do, don't they really? We moved down to Devon and um, I struggled to get part-time um, senior nursing work around the kids. And I'd always, um, for the last few years, been working part-time around the kids. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do something else and try something else. So I thought I would do a holiday let. That's what I thought I would do, because where we live is really beautiful. And I thought, oh, I'll just why don't I just try and see if we can get a cottage in the village and I'll do it as a holiday let. And then I started looking at the numbers. And at the time, with very you know, knowing nothing about it, I thought, well, that looks a bit risky, actually. What if I can't get it full? I'm going to have to pay that mortgage every month. And that's quite a hefty mortgage. How am I going to do that? And then I suddenly started listening to loads of different property podcasts as I was driving um, the kids in and out of different the school and different activities and learned loads and loads of stuff from all those podcasts. There's so much free information out there, isn't there, that you can learn learn from um and then I started thinking oh perhaps I should do some buy to lets and and look at doing that and um so yeah that's how I kind of ended up in property really so when was that then Lisa what year was that well it wasn't meant it wasn't that long ago was it about four four and a half years ago so yeah yeah um I'd always I've always loved property and I've always been really um always my sister jokes I was looking in a state I'm so old it was before right move that you know I was always looking in estate agents windows as a as a you know little child I was always fascinated by the newspaper back pages of, of pictures of houses and working out what I would buy um, and we kind of became an accidental we did like an accidental landlord thing in that well kind of intentionally but we um, wanted to go traveling my husband and I and we had the opportunity to be medics on an expedition in Borneo and so we let our little house out in London and um and that then I was like oh actually hang on this is really cool because the house has gone up loads in the six months we've been traveling the mortgage has been paid and we've been traveling and doing something we really wanted to do um and I think that was a real kind of light bulb oh hang on that yeah look how powerful this is actually what you can do with it so so I've sort of and I've always kind of without realizing it did it like a buy refurbish refinance model on our own houses 
you know, we'd buy something, add some value, and then our next house would be a nicer house because we'd made money on it or we bought it in the right area at the right time or, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I've always, always been interested in property. I cannot let you skirt past the expedition in Borneo. You need to tell me about that. What was that like? What did it entail? Oh, it was fabulous. We were living in the jungle for um, about three months. Um, and we were the so my husband was a paramedic um, and I was an emergency nurse and we were the medics on an expedition and we were um, building a house for research scientists who would be um, living in this part a very very remote part of the jungle um, researching replanting the rainforest in the Danum Valley in Borneo um, and so we lived there and it was there was a group of young people mostly sort of post university early twenties um, and we were kind of with them. Um, doing this expedition and we did lots of other. we also worked at the um Seplok orangutan sanctuary for a bit rebuilding a bridge there and yeah it was just it was fabulous it was a really good experience so yeah wow so did you take the kids with you at the time or was this just you oh no this was before we had kids when we had freedom and a life to do things that we wanted to do um, <laughs> I really remember those days do you yeah it seems you like it, it was a very long time ago <laughs> We were lucky at the time we managed to get six months unpaid leave from our jobs. Um, and like I said, we let the house, you know, rented the house out and, and disappeared for six months. Um, yeah, it was it was brilliant. It was a really good experience. So I've always done quite a bit of traveling, um, but th that was really it was great to have the opportunity to do that. So, And was that one of the reasons that you kind of got into property? Was it to start to, you know, to, to afford you that more flexible lifestyle? No, not if in all honesty, it was simply because I couldn't get the senior nursing work like doing property seriously was like, well, and I'd had these conversations with people who said, oh, well, perhaps you should just get a staff nurse job. And I've been like a senior sister level. And so I don't want to go back to being a staff nurse. I've worked my way up, you know, for a long time. Um, and I just thought, oh, actually, I'm just going to take a bit of a break. But obviously, I needed some kind of income. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? Which is why I thought the holiday cottage would work. And that led me down that journey of exploring how to do property a bit more seriously. So, yeah. And you mentioned you were listening to quite a lot of podcasts and stuff at the time. Obviously, this was this was pre the power of property. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, it would have been on the list, Ellie, definitely. <laughs> it would have been on the list. But what, what, what was your sort of go to podcast? Um, property Hub. I listened to that found that first and then went through almost all their back catalogue you know the uh, it's now the property podcast isn't it I think but um with the two robs that's just you know it's really really great learning isn't it there's so much stuff in there um so that was a really powerful one um and then I found there wasn't that many property podcasts that's before kind of podcasts really started started exploding so um then I found inside um property so those two I think were the ones that I listened to most to start with because they were the ones that were around at the sort of a, a while ago weren't they really so those two were the, were the ones that I felt were gave you loads of stuff and then read a few a few books um and then just yeah yeah there's, there is just so much I think people feel like they need to spend thousands and thousands of pounds getting a property education and actually I think there's so much you can get without spending very much money at all you know so well that, that was really interesting that was going to be my next question because you mentioned that it, you know sort of uh, accidentally you became the, the accident landlord and you were actually doing the the BRR model which is buy refurb refinance mm. But did you did you go from the podcast and the books to investing in your own education or did you uh, have any sort of mentor or coach to guide you through the process? I think when I um, I then did one course with one of the big property training companies and I hated it, to be honest. I really hated it. I 
I hated the upsell when they did the crying upsell thing. I was storming around the car park on the phone to my husband going, I'm going to come home. I can't bear it. This is awful. And it's like, you spent a lot of money. Get back in there. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I really didn't enjoy it. And I felt a lot of the stuff they were teaching felt like it was out of date stuff. There was out of date resources in it, which is a real bugbear of mine. This is a folder we prepared 20 years ago. Look, we're still teaching from it, you know. Um, and they... Um, yeah, there was just this big upsell all the time in it. And I, I, yeah, and a lot of the stuff they were telling me, they were like, oh, you can't do an all money out deal. That's a complete unicorn. And I'd just done one in Torquay. So I was like, okay, right. You know, and I just, it just felt like a bit wrong. So um, I did that, didn't really like it. Um, and yeah, then kind of just carried on finding more information that I could um, for free and good people. I, I did do some stuff with Blue Oak. With, that's how I got to know Rich, who's my business partner now, but through the guys um, with Blue Oak, with Andy and Rich there and Paul at the time. So, it's really interesting because when when we got into property, well, we, we actually got into property back in 2006 and, and, and epically failed, which I'm quite quite open about. But yeah, it's how you learn, isn't it? You know, it's really important learning. Yeah. If anyone wants a masterclass on what not to do, then, <laughs> yeah, don't do heads or tails, whether it's property or stocks and shares. Don't Google get rich quick and don't sign it off for the first off-plan development that you see. So there's three top tips. <laughs> Brilliant <laughs> advice. Yeah. <laughs> thousands of pounds. But um, but but one of the things that drew me to the property education company that we went to, it's actually wasn't the property stuff, it was the the mindset. Um, and, and that was very important to me, which I think depends on the individual and their circumstances. Yeah. But but from where I was at the time with postnatal depression, etc., mm. the, the community aspect of it and the, um, the 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 sort of accountability of the ongoing support was was quite appealing. But actually, when I when I think back to how much we've implemented in terms of the property strategy, um, it, it it probably hasn't been that much. If I'm being quite honest. Mm. Mm. So, but it's interesting where you kind of where you get the value from and you mentioned there that you um you started how, well how did you become aware of blue or blue, blue oak in the first instance I don't really know I think um yeah I don't know it was obviously through their Facebook group I think yeah I think and just sort of became aware of the guys there really liked the way that they spoke liked them felt that they weren't charlatans i would had a bad experience with someone claiming to be a property mentor who really wasn't and was dodgy as you like um and i i felt that they they came across very genuinely and were the you know the opposite of it and and i felt like i needed someone to help me to work out how to grow that's that's what i was really looking for was some advice and support and how to kind of accelerate you know and, and make it from a couple of buy to lets to actually a proper income um and i felt that that strategy was what they would help me with so yeah, that's fine. Well, I, I love that. And the fact that, you know, there's going to be people listening to this who probably spent tens of thousands of pounds on, on training. And, and you're going, you're, Lisa, you're telling me you were getting all money out of deals without any training. But you know what? I, it, it, let's just talk about that because we mm. find a lot of all money out deals and we find a lot of them online as well. Yeah. This was with an estate agent. This wasn't anything, yeah. no saucer. This wasn't any clever writing letters to hundreds of landlords because I didn't know what I was doing at that point. I just saw a property that I could see the potential in, you know, and it was a property, a really beautiful property. And I've, I love old buildings. And so this was where I decided I was going to be doing heritage buildings. This is what I was going to do forever. Um, obviously, I'm not. And we'll talk about that later. But um this was a beautiful old um, terraced house that had been divided into two flats, divided really badly in the kind of 80s um, and hadn't had any love from any landlords. So it didn't have planning permission to be two flats. So it had been on the market for a long time and no one had picked it up. No one knew what to do with it. 
Um, and so I put a crazy lowball cash offer in um, and bought it and then got the retrospective planning permission and, you know, a certificate of lawfulness for it. Because there was enough evidence there to do that and sorted them out, and made them into two really nice flats, you know, updated them. And, and yeah, I've got lovely tenants in there. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. So what when you um, first got involved with the Blue Oak community there, you've got a few buy-to-lets, you had aspirations to scale. And what kind of happened from that point then? <laughs> well, that's when well, the, the other pro- – I, I ended up buying a bungalow. After those flats, I ended up buying a bungalow that was a um, – I'd been asked to buy it by a housing association who randomly approached me and said, would you do a property for a young man with learning disabilities? And I was like, yeah don't know why not I just got my cash back out of that deal so I'd got my, my my pot of money back again to play with and I was like oh how's that yeah okay completely naively in hindsight went yeah sounds interesting and they just had a landlord pull out of a deal and this young man needed a home to live in um and so I ended up completely by accident ended up in a supported living property landlord setting up a property for this young man with really complex learning disabilities needed quite a highly adapted property anyone who follows me anywhere will have heard me talk about this bungalow because I bang on about it I'm sure they're all bored of it but you know it I learned so much by doing that property it felt to me like all my worlds kind of collided because I was using my nurse brain, my kind of common sense mum brain to problem solve, my property brain. All of those bits and pieces all came together. And I was like, this just felt right. I was in care team meetings, working out what kind of door handles we needed to put on this property and and making everyone kind of join up and talk together to work out a solution to make this property work for him. Because he was being evicted from his property and needed to be in this house. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, um, uh, let's talk about it for months. And it's like, well, no, he's being evicted. We can get him in if we can make these decisions. In So so I did that. But in hindsight, I realised how naive I was about it. The process of the supported living side of it was really far more challenging than I anticipated. So I really struggled to get it refinanced. The surveyor came around and said, you've ruined this property and downvalued it massively. So I didn't get my money out. So it's still it's not a brilliant deal because I ended up leaving far too much money in that property. Um, but I, at the same time, the local authority loved it. The commissioner was talking about this being an amazing case study and collaboration. They were inviting all the everyone from the local authority. I mean, we had tens of people come around that property to look at it and see what a brilliant case study it was. And then the local care companies were saying, oh, Lisa, that's brilliant. We need two of those. Could you do me three of those? And I was thinking, feeling a bit burnt. I've just left my money in this deal. I don't know what to do. Um, you know, I really want to do more of them. But how do I do that? Um, and it was those conversations I was having with the Blue Oak guys, with Rich and Andy about, well, how do we scale this? There's a massive problem. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up setting up the Facebook group and just trying to find other people who were doing supported living, you know, and say there must be other people out there who were doing supported. I can't be the only person who's done this. And so I set up a Facebook group to try and find other people. I'd searched all the property groups for supported living, learning disabilities, all the words I could find and couldn't find anyone talking about it anywhere. So I was like, we need to talk about this because there's a massive problem. You know, there needs to be a lot. There's a lot more property that's needed and private landlords can meet that demand. I felt really passionately that actually as private landlords, we can all we can all do that. And actually, people have this misconception that it's altruistic, that it's a good thing to do, that, you know, they'll do it for as a charity. And, you know, but actually it makes good sense. I make more money out of my bungalow than I do out of my flats. You know, it, it, it's a good commercial decision as well as it being the right thing to do. So, so um, yeah, so I ended up on this kind of <laughs> this journey to, to discover supported living. 
No, but I love that as well because I think it is quite important to see that because a lot of private landlords, they are entrepreneurs and, and, and for a lot of people, not and I'm absolutely not saying that this is the right way to do it, but a lot of people have the view that they will acquire their wealth and get to a certain point and then yeah. they will do their, their charitable work and what have you. So so what you're actually providing is a way where landlords can um, sort of do their um a positive contribution to society but not to the detriment of um making money as well mm. but, but which is usually important but what why do you think this is not a more widely discussed or common property strategy when you think about your brrs or your bank mm. or whatever else this is i mean it's definitely more talked about but it's it's still a bit of a hidden secret isn't it yeah yeah absolutely I think it's difficult. It's, you know, I'm not going to lie and say it's easy strategy to get right. It, it's challenging to get right. There's lots of different moving parts you need to line up and it can take a bit more time to get all of those parts lined up. And if you don't understand those different parts, it can be quite challenging, I think. So I think um, it, it can be a bit more complex in the setup. But then once you've got it set up, you really can be a very lazy landlord. You can hand over a good quality property to, to an organisation who's going to lease it from you for five, 10 years, and you can really not have to do very much then and your money comes in. It's, it's Again, when I compare the properties, the bungalow creates far less work than my buy, refurbish, refinance flats, you know, than my private rental flats, you know, so, yeah. I can imagine that. And what were the sort of challenges you mentioned, that, you know, first time around, you were very naive. You thought, you know, it sounds like a great thing to do, but... Um, logistically you know there, there, there was a few bumps in the road and I'm really keen to just explore the the pitfalls as well because yeah although with no experience with supported living even just doing a, a planning application or the red tape like you mentioned heritage properties not all just all the other challenges that we face yeah. as developers it's um it, it's good to know what those pitfalls are yeah I mean finance is a real challenge um and it feels like there's no real reason why finance is such a challenge. It feels like the underwriters and the finance brokers don't understand supported living well enough. They're a bit scared of it. So therefore they go, oh, no, well, we won't let to supported living organisations. So there are limited finance products. So when you come to refinance, you've only got a small pool of products of term lending that's available to you. There's more opening up. And my my mission and passion is to make uh, um make more products available and the more we talk about it and the more we make people aware of it we and question actually well why are you saying you're not letting to vulnerable tenants is what they class supported living tenants and actually i think it's discriminatory i think actually what are the grounds for saying those tenants are more vulnerable than say <clears throat> excuse me say a single mum um living with three children why why is the, a young man with learning disabilities more vulnerable and there's more reputational risk they say and they have if they had to emergency rehouse or evict that young man with learning disabilities more than a single mom with three children I think there's both reputational risk they're both a bad headline in the local paper aren't they that this bank evicted either of those people and you don't see them saying they won't let to you know single parents or you know so I, I kind of feel like there's a long way to go on the finance to make sure there's more finance products there. But the more we talk about it, the more conversations we have. And, and that's one thing that we're doing at Supported Living Gateway is challenging that status quo and actually having those conversations with people and saying, well, why? Why won't you lend to your 
to these tenants and they kind of go oh mm, yeah let me go and have a chat with someone <laughs> so you know we're, we're beginning to make those changes but finance is a problem and so if you have any other sort of restrictions on your lending so if you're a first-time landlord or you've got a ccj or a bit of a debt issue or something like that then it makes it even harder because there's that limited pool of lending. So, so that is something to be very much aware of with supported living at the moment. My, my hopes are that will change. And similarly with insurance, insurance can be challenging, getting the right insurance product. And you have to be really open and honest with your insurance brokers about the tenants who are going to be in your properties and make sure you've got proper insurance. Because it's very easy to just get buy to let insurance and, and it actually doesn't cover the tenants and the tenant group that are in there. So so you do need to make sure that. And, you know, there are specialist brokers out there. And again, the more conversations we have about this, the more products that are becoming available. So, you know, it is changing, but insurance is a challenge, too. Um, and then I suppose the other one, like I said, is time to set it up to get all the moving parts lined up to get everyone to agree to the different the different people who have to agree to to getting a supported living scheme set up can sometimes take a bit of time I think they're the main challenges really so, so you mentioned about the vulnerable adults and the learning difficulties what other kind of demographics would, would come under that umbrella so it's a really there's loads of different um organizations that are looking to lease properties to support people and there's there's the more you uncover, the more and more people there are really there. So if you think um, children in care, the organisations who support them, the children's homes need properties for children in care. You've got teenagers leaving the care system. So young people are transitioning out of care who um, they'll often be supported for a few years whilst they learn to live those independent living skills. We've got long and enduring support needs like learning disabilities, mental health, chronic or um, chronic mental health and autism so where people will always have those conditions they're a lifelong condition um, where people may need support for their lifetime so they will need properties of a whole range and then you've got short-term mental health uh, you've got addictions you've got homelessness you've got um veteran support people fleeing domestic abuse there's there's so many different organizations who need to lease a building to support the individuals whilst they're learning maybe independent skills or getting some support to be able to transition to take their own tenancy or maybe they're people who are going to need support for their life so there's a there's a whole range of different of different people who are going to need these properties yeah, I, I absolutely love that. It's actually a passion. It's um, a, a bit of a passion of mine, uh, something I've got on my own vision board, having worked in, in prisons for over nine years and worked with probation as well, in particular with, with females offenders, um, yeah. helping them with, with that transition, not just in terms of providing accommodation, but the, the holistic support that's required to help people transition back into mainstream society and also um, you know, re reduce the chances of, of reoffending yeah. which has uh, and again i think this, this is where you always get the red tape isn't it like for for example just give you some, some pointless trivia here um at the time when i was working at the prisons the the female uh, prison i worked at Ascombe grange it was an open prison and it was very forward thinking in its approach we used to do a lot of resettlement work with the women and they were able to do voluntary work but not just any voluntary work which we tended to happen in other open prisons it would be in line with what they were looking to do on release we we're very structured in the approach to that 
We were then brokering relationship with employers to get them paid employment whilst they were in custody uh, on day release, and also right. when they when they left, um, and having those conversations, breaking down the barriers with, with some national chains, and of course you get the press camping out and trying to destroy those relationships and things. But but there was a lot of external uh, pushback on that. People could you know say, oh, you know, we're living in this time where people are just prisoners are sat there playing their playstations and things, which absolutely wasn't the case. But our national reoffending rate was less than 5% against a national average of over 70%. So when you get the the headlines and the daily fail or whatever else saying, Mm -hmm. oh, X amount of money to um, look after this, I don't really like the the, the word prisoner, but one of the residents Mm -hmm. used to call them, um, which again, people used to to say was wishy-washy. The proof was in the pudding. You know, Mm -hmm. if you just look at the the frontline numbers with these things, like the additional cost of things like supported living, but you actually look at the long-term impact it's having of society, you know, because a lot of the the demographics that you spoke about, you know, the homeless, um, you know, ex-veterans with PTSD and things like that, these were... Um, from my experience working in the prisons, this was a big part of, of our avatar, and it was because yeah. of the the disjointed approach. You know, it was almost like they're they're your problem when they're in prison, and then then you've got a million and one agencies that don't speak to each other working in the prison, and it's exactly the same when they're released. And then probation kept losing their contract, and they go to another contract, and there was no continuity there. No. So it, it, it's really doing a a, a huge public it is doing a public service and it's mm-hmm. it's a phenomenal way to, to 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 make money but you mentioned then about some of the challenges which i know that you've faced but this was very much the premise behind what you're doing now isn't it is to take the headaches away from landlord lords so that they don't experience the same the same challenges we, we basically decided that there was a huge problem when i spoke to lots of providers they didn't know how to find landlords they didn't know how to have those conversations with landlords and they didn't understand landlords mm-hmm. um and the more conversations i had with the property investors is that they didn't really understand the supported living providers and it felt like there needed to be this kind of translation service this way to connect people so we we the whole vision with the gateway was to make it easier for everyone to connect so straightforward you know to start with it was you've got a property as a landlord you can upload your property to the platform our providers can then search the platform and see what properties there are there just saves everyone a lot of time as a private property investor I get phone calls and my you know my my inbox and social media messages are constantly full of oh how do I find providers how do I find the providers where I am and people find that even if they they want to pick up the phone they want to try and connect with and find these the supported living providers they quite often just get stonewalled or they you know they just get kind of no further there's a barrier there because a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are now on the phone to these organisations and they don't have the time and the resource to deal with every property investor who wants to pick up the phone and have a chat with them about what they're offering. They fall into two groups. I think that the, some organisations find that they're getting overwhelmed with property investors and they're just like, whoa, I just can't be speak- having all these conversations because it's just a waste of my time. And a lot of them don't go anywhere because a lot of people, we all know property investors who'll go, who chance it, but yeah, 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 no, I can buy a block of 12 flats, but really they couldn't get a mortgage for a 50 grand house, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and or the other way the organisations are is that they're so tiny and small and there's just being run by a couple of people. They just do not have the resource to connect, to shout on social media about who they are. And so no one can find them. So, so the idea was that the gateway saves them a lot of time, makes it a one-stop shop for them to find property. And as a property investor, you can simply upload your property. You don't have to phone round, spend hours on the phone trying to find these organisations. So, so that was it. And, and then we've kind of evolved to this buy-to-order thing that's, that's in um, the, the buy-to-order product that's in testing at the moment where you can simply, the providers also list the properties they need. So they can say, what I really need is a, you know, a four bed detached house in this postcode. And as a property investor, you can look at that list and say, oh, actually, do you know what? I'd buy that if they're going to lease it for five years, that would work for me. And then then you guys can connect and have those conversations about finding buying the properties for them. So it's a way to grow a supported living portfolio very easily, really. I absolutely love that, though, because, it, you know, the, there's a lot of people in all aspects of property. They go out and they, they do what they think is going to work in an area that they think is going to mm-hmm. work. An area they think is going to work in, and and it's it's not always the case. And you can understand from a security point of view for especially anyone a bit newer to the industry as well. We always say start with the end in mind. If you know that you're going to be sourcing, negotiating, and developing a property with an end user guaranteed at the end of it, then that that's a pretty risk free strategy from a you know from the landlord's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You've got your, it means that when you're doing that refurb, you know exactly when they're going to move in, when the lease is going to start, who's going to be there. You've, you've got that kind of, um, that certainty, and particularly for bigger schemes, you know, if you're doing a, a block of 12 flats, say, you know, if you were to sell those or rent them privately, I know the market's on fire at the moment, so it's a little bit artificial, isn't it? Because it would be full probably by the time you'd finished it at the moment. But in the normal market, it'd take a while to sell those or to rent each of those properties. So um, actually knowing that you've got an organisation who's going to take the lease on on that big development straight away, lease the whole block from you from this date, that gives you real certainty. You don't need to bother with show flats and, you know, show furniture and all of that stuff because actually it's all just ready to go. So someone's ready to take it. So it does, it gives you a really good exit for your for your developments as well. well what, what kind of terms are they, usually, are they usually leased from and is it full market value? Does it depend much? Is there variables? Most of our providers are looking to pay market rent, I'd say, on properties. Um, Some will be um, slightly closer to LHA rates, which, again, depending on where you are in the country, sometimes that that works and sometimes that doesn't work so well. So it really varies. But I'd say the majority of our providers are looking to pay about market rent, sometimes above market rent if you've got an adapted property or there's a high level of adaptation there. But I think if you set your expectation around market rent, but even if you're offered slightly below market rent, you need to look at that bigger picture in that you haven't got voids. You're not responsible for the wear and tear, the damage. Um, they may cover the insurance. They may cover the gas boiler servicing. They may cover the fire alarm servicing. All of these bits and pieces, which actually all those hundreds of pounds add up over the year to mean that actually you can still be better off net in your pocket by accepting slightly lower rent than you think you can. You know, So, so it's looking at that big picture when, when you look at you know the leases. Most of them are offering sort of internal wear and tear and damage. Normally, you would be covering the external. So like the roof, the windows, the guttering, things like that would normally fall to you. But if you've recently done a refurb and you're happy with all of that in good condition, then that is the bit that very few landlords end up doing a lot of maintenance on those bits and pieces. It's generally all your internal wear and tear, isn't it? And the 
the knocks and scrapes and all of the things that happen inside. Um, so, so yeah, I'd say the majority of them. But but each lease is we don't have a set. This is a supported living gateway lease. We each organisation um, puts forward a lease that they're happy with that they and then you negotiate that with the landlord directly. So it's you know because there's not a one size fits all because there's such a variety of organisations, there's such a variety of tenant groups, and the way they're funded can be slightly different as well. So so each organisation has their own way of doing things. And also, I mean, it's not uncommon for a, a HMO specialist letting agency to to charge fifteen percent. You know, twenty percent for me at the moment. Twenty percent, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, I mean, uh, personally, everyone does property differently. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, having got HMOs and and single lets and you know everything in between, it seems. <laughs> like they earn their money that is they are worth their weight in gold yeah, i mean yeah. property is never truly passive but you know doing mm. something like supported living is probably as close as you're going to get if you're handing over your keys and you're not getting them back for three years or how does that work do they do um you know do, do the landlords come to inspect every month every quarter or um, how much involvement do they have with the property from the point of going into the contract it depends again it's a personal basis and it depends on the organization and it also depends on the tenants if you've got um tenants who are particularly sensitive to people maybe you've got someone with um a high autism who would really struggle with strangers coming into their house even to do an inventory then it might be completely inappropriate for you as the landlord to come and do that inventory so some organizations will just send you photos on a regular basis so you've got that as a thing um, it, it really depends there's not a one size fits all again it's it's what you're happy with what the organization's happy with and it's having a conversation with them and, and saying actually this is this is what would work for me um, and getting to know the organizations you're working with and understanding them and listening to them listening to their problems and and what will work for them and what won't work for them is really key you know as well do, do you sort of, as the person that sits in the middle, do you find it helps to really get to know your landlords and you think, oh, if, well, if we were to use Ellie and Mark, for example, we know that they do a, a good quality finish. We know that they can, you know, take, tailor the bathrooms before they start the refurb or wheelchair access or or whatever else. Do, do you start to get that relationship where you just know a particular property would be suited to a particular agency? It, I think it's... I, I think all our landlords do a really good quality finish. We haven't had any rubbish ones. And that was one of our concerns to start with, because sometimes I, I have conversations with people who say, oh, it's not good enough for private rental. So I thought I'd put it on Sported Living Gateway. I don't <laughs> like those conversations. Um, <laughs> you know, they should be the, the highest quality property that you can deliver, you know. And I actually, all the properties we have on the Gateway have so far been really good quality properties, which is which thrills me and that's exactly what we want that's exactly how it should be so we've not had to have those tricky conversations yet we're actually sorry we're not putting your property forward because it's just not good enough obviously there's properties in refer but we know that people have got that vision for what they will look like when they're done and that's fine that's exactly that's great um so i think getting obviously we know some of them but we're 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 growing so fast we don't know everyone on the platform you know we can't physically know everyone we've got our lovely founder members who we've known from the beginning and who we know but there are lots of people on the gateway who we don't know exactly what their their product is but like i said the pro the properties that we're seeing and the finish that they're putting forward when they upload their properties are, are great i'm always really proud when i when i onboard sports living providers and i spend a lot of my time talking to the providers i always show them how the site works show them around the site so 
I'll say, well, where do you want to search? And the search engine is similar to any like property portal search. And so I'm showing them over Zoom wherever they want to look on the platform. And every time I'm proud of the properties that we've put forward. So every time I'll do, OK, right, they want to look in Liverpool. Let's see what's there. I don't know what's been uploaded this week because I'm not on the properties upload side. And um, and then uh, and I never... I've, to start with, I was really anxious about that. I was like, oh, what if there's something not very good on there? Not anymore. I love it. It's just like, oh, look at that great one. Wouldn't that be brilliant? And they're like, oh, this is brilliant. Look at that property. You know, so it, it's good. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And, and would you guys, I mean, I'm just trying to work out where does your involvement start and finish? Like if there was a property with substandard or um, on the flip side of that, obviously always speaking up for the landlord as well, if there was a an agency or or individuals who weren't treating a property mm. as they, they should be because I suppose you know the reality is there probably is a, a slightly increased risk what do, do you play much part in the mediation of that what what um sort of get outs is there I know that the contracts are are bespoke you know to to, to each situation but um are you guys part of that process should it all sort of going a, a little bit peaked on it's, it's really tricky, isn't it? So we act as an introducer, you know, so our, our main role is introducing people and then they go off and come up with a lease and together and make sure they're happy with it and work out their ongoing relationship. We're always there if people need support. So we're always there to pick up stuff. And if we found out there was an organisation who wasn't looking after properties, then I would be very seriously having conversations with their management about whether we wanted them on our platform going forward and understanding what went there. Because we don't want to be putting forward organisations who are not going to be looking forward, looking after people's properties, because that's that's not what we're about. So we definitely have those conversations if we found that was that was an issue um i think yeah yeah it, it's 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 each each um interaction between an organization and a landlord is different the way it's done so you know we can't possibly kind of um hold every one of those things we, we simply are introducing really but we are definitely there to support if they need it yeah no i love that and i, and I think you it's not terribly different to a typical buy to let in that sense. You know, your letting yeah. agencies will do their due diligence, they'll do their checks, they could do CRB checks, they can do credit checks, you know, you can interview people. But ultimately, it's, uh, you know, my, my experience have been some of the, the best people on paper, you know, the most charismatic um, sort of working professionals as as we like to call them in the property world they're they're you know i think there's a bit of a sidebar there can be a bit of snobbery can yeah. there in property we all want the the bloody doctors and the dentists and and stuff like that and not your your lha your local housing authorities traditionally and and mm. you know people are people and people's um the way that they've been brought up, the respect they have for themselves and their property is not based on the amount of money that goes into their bank account. And and it's, uh, I think when you get into this crazy world of being a landlord, you soon um, break down those those misconceptions. And 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 actually, you know, you mentioned there just another point for landlords who might be considering getting into this. Yeah, the market's absolutely flying at the moment, and properties are, you know, get, getting rented out in, in nanoseconds, but. Um, you know, it, it, it's not it's not always the case. And I think when you do have something like supported living and you do have the longer term leases in place, it definitely affords another level of financial protection because during COVID, I mean, we're, we're still very much in COVID, you know, as of the time mm. we're recording this, 
Boris has just announced yet another announcement today. So, you know, Saturday it was going to be three weeks. Today we're doing another one. Who knows what's going to happen? And without yeah. getting into the, the scaremongering and the fear, my friends and, and people within my network who had the LHA contracts during the first pandemic were the ones that were laughing all the way to the bank. Because they weren't, it didn't make any difference about, you know, redundancies. They were claiming their housing benefits and that money was going to those landlords. There's nothing sure as, as death and taxes, you know. So it definitely de-risks the process. It definitely does. And I think if you're looking to hold property for the long term, I would argue it's the easiest way to hold property for the long term as a landlord. And I think as part of a, a wider portfolio is a really good risk strategy to have some you know to, to have that that balance across your portfolio and having some supported living properties leased to an organization provide you like you said with that reliable regular income when things are a bit up and down I think people are taught in property training things that they want working professionals that's what everyone's you're told they're your ideal tenants and they're the tenants you should go for but I, I don't think that's necessarily true I think you, you need to think about and question why you want that and what is it about it that you want because actually a lot of the working professional um, particularly some of the younger ones are the ones who are phoning you up because the light bulb's gone and they don't know how to change a light bulb or you know and actually maybe you, you letting it to an organization who's going to look at who look after your property who have their own maintenance team perhaps it's a lot easier way to let your property you know yeah I, I fully buy into that what's the kind of I know that I'm asking you how long's a piece of string but currently out of the properties if you've got what's the longest lease that you've negotiated <laughs> Um, we've got some people looking for 25-year leases. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, some pe- there's not many of those. Um, the majority of them are looking for three to seven years, I would say, particularly on the residential properties. On the blocks of flats, maybe 10 to 15 years is generally where they're sitting. Um, but again, each organisation is different. And there's been, a, you know, I can talk about this the lease-based model of supported housing for for hours and it's really not the right place for this because I'll bore everyone to death but (laughs) there there has been this whole thing where actually people people's perception of supported living is that you get a 25-year lease you get really really high rents and as a landlord you milk the system um and I think there's a lot of misnomer around that. And actually what happens is as the landlord, you sit at the top beautifully making really good money each month. But actually what happens is the organisations in the middle get squeezed. Your property isn't looked after and the people in the properties aren't getting the support they should have because that money's coming from there and rather than into your pocket. So we're really passionate about it being a sustainable lease, about it being a lease that works for everybody in the system. You can still, as a landlord, make good money on it, but not stupid money, you know, so you're still, and you're not necessarily going to get those 25-year leases that you do hear people talking about down the pub when they're talking about supported living, because there was fewer of them around than there were. So I would say, particularly on residential properties, if you're looking at kind of like a three to seven year average on a residential property, I would say you're about safe. You know what I really love about you, Lisa? You're just really honest and transparent. And, um, you know, we've mentioned it's not always the case in property. I don't know if there's a disproportionately amount of unscrupulous people in property or if it's just the, my confirmation bias because that, that's the sector I work in. But any strategy poses its risks. You know, there's there's very rarely these magical unicorns. And, you know, while, while some strategies like supported living massively have their advantages, I, I just really respect the fact that you come on here and say, look, this is, is, is not easy. These are the sort of pitfalls. However, done properly, this is a phenomenal strategy. It provides a, another level of security. Uh, and I think that there is, a, of course, there is people who want to rinse the system, you know, mm-hmm. the system, as they say. but I do think that 
again, perhaps I'm being slightly naive here, but I think the majority, the majority of us, if we can, you know, find a way to contribute back to to making society a better place and and to help those that are the most vulnerable, vulnerable and in need of our support. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps, you know, aren't at a point in, in our businesses or with our finances that we can do that on a um, free gratis basis. I think things like supported living are, are just a, a phenomenal opportunity for everybody. Absolutely. If you can hold property and you can create home, the stories that I hear about people, you know, um, being offered homes, people moving into properties, the difference it makes to people's lives, having the right property. You know, you hear stories of people who their support needs drop dramatically from having four members of staff 24 hours a day down to one or two members of staff 24 hours a day because they're so much more relaxed. They're comfortable. They're happy in their own home. That that's what it's about. As, as, and if you can do that whilst your property is being looked after and you're making good money each month, I really don't think there's a better way to hold property. But I know I am a bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we know what you've achieved within a rel- relatively short space of time, Lisa. It's um, it's been hugely um, uh, you know impressive to to watch your growth as well and to see your continued success. But what what are your what are your plans um, on a personal level and also for the supported living gateway? I think rolling out the buy to order product next year that's really exciting. So at the moment it's only available to our existing members. So so rolling that out to everyone that's going to be brilliant to see that. Um, my my big goals are about making it mainstream supported living. So like I said, the finance, the insurance, the problems where they're there actually them not being a problem, them not being the reason people can't let properties to supported living providers that finance isn't a barrier that's my big one of my big goals um i think you know there are so many people who need the property who need property there's lots of people stuck in long-term hospitals long-term institutional care who haven't got the right homes and i don't want to hear those stories anymore i want actually that to property be to not be the barrier and i think as private landlords we can all meet those needs for a whole range of different people and as as landlords if we can just make it more mainstream it's easier for us all to let our properties to support living providers we can really make a massive difference so, so i suppose carrying on banging the drum about supported living is what i'm going to be doing ellie i think in the, <laughs> and, and just raising awareness and helping people to understand that you know i think um yeah i think that's 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 what drives me. That's what gets me really excited. And yeah, just making more people aware of it. Well, I love what you do. I'm a huge fan. Um, how can people support you, Lisa, if they want more information, if they want to reach out? Um, you can go to supportedlivinggateway.com and register as a property investor for free. It's a free and then you get some of our resources sent to you. So it's worth just going on there. And obviously you can follow us on social media, follow me on social media. I've also got my own podcast, Ellie, have I? The Supported Living Property Podcast. So if people want to learn more about supported living, they're not bored of me hearing me bang on about it today. <laughs> and um, you can find me there. And every week there's some new episodes with me talking to different people about supported living. So thank you, Absolutely. Ellie. Absolutely love that. I knew it was going to be a good one, Lisa. You've uh, you've provided so much value for the listeners and I hope they enjoy it as much as I have. Uh, you've been awesome. Thank you so much for being a great guest. That concludes another episode of The Power of Property. If you've enjoyed today's content, please make sure you leave a review, subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone you feel would get value from it. It really does make a difference. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>